Well, yet another week dawned with Democrats soiling their collective trousers over bad polling numbers, and then yet another Tuesday finished with Republicans getting yet another off-year electoral drubbing. Strap in, we're going to talk about the reasons and implications around both those things in this episode. Hey everybody, welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with an academic background in international relations focus and security policy, and real-world experience working in the U.S. domestic political space and living in a number of other countries than my own, all of which combined, I think, positions me fairly well both to interpret for my international audience what's going on in the politics of my own country, and to shed light for some of the folks back home on some events of note going on in the rest of the world. So there are a million things going on in the world outside the U.S., and I will certainly go back to talking about that in a future episode. But this week saw a bunch of interesting political news coming out of the United States, so I wanted to take a look at that. Also, as I've mentioned the last few episodes, I did recently start an email list to give folks a ping when a new episode comes out and create a more direct way to get in touch. Send me an email at OKTalksPodcast at gmail.com if you want to join, and please, as always, do remember to subscribe to OK Talks on whatever platform you listen and share the show with anybody who you think might enjoy it or at least grudgingly tolerate it. This week began with Democrats everywhere, as I said at the top, soiling their collective trousers over a series of very bad horse race polls for Joe Biden. The long and short of it is that right here, about a year out from the presidential election, Biden is behind, within the margin of error, I believe, but behind Donald Trump in most of the major swing states that will determine the presidency next year. Now, a bunch of people have noted this is just one poll, and realistically this polling seems to be not a whole lot worse than where Obama was sitting this time in 2011, when people started writing his political obituary, and then a year later he beat Mitt Romney pretty handily in the presidential election. <laughs> Boy, in retrospect, we sure didn't know how good we had it when Mitt Romney was the nightmare scenario for us. Others have pointed out, though, that this bad poll doesn't seem to be a fluke, but rather part of an ongoing trend in which Biden gets terrible polling numbers. Basically, well, since the rather calamitous withdrawal from Afghanistan in the late summer of 2021, coming on the heels of the Delta variant slowing down the COVID recovery... Biden's numbers haven't really recovered since then and have been pretty consistently on a downward trend. Here's the thing about this news, though. Biden has kind of always done badly in polls. This, this just seems to be, like, a thing. Part of these bad numbers certainly have to do with the relentless age narrative, as I discussed in episode 50. Funnily enough, in this poll, slightly fewer people said that they thought Biden is too old to run again than said so in the series of polls I was rolling my eyes at back in episode 50, but it's in the same neighborhood. Somewhere around two-thirds, three-quarters of Americans seem to believe that Biden is just too old. The reason I point to this poll as further justification of my strongly held belief that this issue has been massively elevated by a relentless narrative around Biden's age is that included in this New York Times poll was a comparison to similar polls in 2020, when only about 34% thought Biden was too old. Now, yes, to be fair, in the last three years, Joe Biden has aged three years. But I'm guessing that the simple fact that Biden is three years older than he was in 2020 on its own isn't enough to have caused the number of people who think he's too old to be president to have approximately doubled since then. Now, I think instead that this is further evidence of the difference that it makes when in one pre-election period, voters hear a mix of stories about other candidates, a pandemic, 
other stuff about the upcoming election, a, a national like historic reckoning around race and police brutality, efforts by the incumbent president to preemptively subvert the election, <laughs> and then another pre-election period in which what voters receive is largely dominated by one story on a loop about how old Grandpa Joe crashed his bike on the way to the early bird special for dinner at 4 p.m. and then fell and couldn't get up because he was overexcited upon hearing about a special deal on Metamucil or something. I will note, for example, that although the number of people who think Trump is too old to be president has also increased since 2020, that number hasn't increased by as much for Trump as it has for Biden, even though Trump keeps having these weird episodes of forgetting which state he's in and mixing up various of his favorite dictators, not to mention various other, let's be generous and call them brain farts, which I've detailed in earlier episodes, especially episode 50. I suspect that another reason for Biden's bad polling numbers continues to be the... Yeah, the hell with it, I'm just going to call it disloyalty of the base. As I discussed back in episode either 41 or 42, despite the fact that Biden has been unequivocally the most successful liberal president since at least the 1960s, a lot of the further left part of the base has always been suspicious of Biden because, you know, he's old, he's been around for a long time, and while these people would show up to pull the lever for the blue team come election time, they're very ready to publicly bitch about Biden when a pollster calls them, while Republicans are a hell of a lot less likely to turn on their own team in the same way. My guess is that some of that is born out of, one, the long history of the Democratic base falling in love with candidates that present as young changemakers, Kennedy, Carter, Obama, who have a lot of charisma and not as much experience, and two, the extent to which Democrats suck at the expectations game. Now this, I think, is an interesting phenomenon, and I really suggest that anybody who hasn't yet go listen to episode 42 of this show, where I dig into it further. The bottom line, Democratic voters have been trained to expect candidates who are either extremely, like, personally exciting, or candidates who ran on a very aspirational policy agenda. Biden doesn't fit that expectation, and I think is being punished in polls by voters with 10-second memories. Well, especially young voters whose TikTok habit has given them two-second memories. Well, I'm feeling kind of self-conscious about the fact that although I'm only 30, a lot of this episode so far feels like, damn kids, get off my lawn! And I don't think it's about to get any better. I also think the, what we could maybe call base on reliability factor in Biden's low numbers is even worse at the moment given the situation in the Middle East, which is unbelievably complicated and nuanced, and which Democratic voters have differing views on. So it by definition splits the base and not everybody's going to agree with Biden's approach to the conflict, which for the record has been excellent, but plays especially badly with people who learned everything they know about the Arab-Israeli conflict in the last three weeks. Related to this, I've seen a couple of overheated Twitter posts from certain pundits who want to try to make everything about the election who are saying that Biden is now guaranteed to lose Michigan because he's alienated the Arab or Muslim vote. People generalizing the Arab-American community this way, I think, have a dimmer view of Arabs than I do and are making the same mistake as some naive politicians who have at times treated the entire Latino community as a block and have basically shown up a few weeks before the election like, Hola, would you like to hear my views on immigration? Speaking of generalizing Arabs, it's important to remember, as people so often seem to not do, that Arabs and Muslims are not interchangeable. Arabs are an ethnic group and Islam is a religious ideology, and although lots of Arabs are Muslims, not all Arabs are, and conflating Arabs with Muslims is discriminatory toward both. 
Furthermore, within the Muslim community, there are very different degrees to which religion is going to drive how individual people vote. It's worth noting, my suspicion is that in the long term, some Muslim voters, specifically those for whom their religion is a big part of the way they engage with politics, will probably naturally start to drift away from the Democrats, since the Republican Party is, well, much more the political home in America for very conservative religious and social values. And that's okay. I don't think that the Democrats should compromise on things like gay rights, for example. And I don't think that this eventual drift is avoidable, even if Joe Biden were to single-handedly abandon 75 years of American foreign policy and throw Israel, the Jewish state, America's closest ally in the Middle East, under the bus. Not that he should do that to hold on to those votes, but yeah, I don't think it would make a difference. Without wanting to go too deeply into this issue in this episode, I can't entirely help myself. There is no American president that wouldn't show solidarity with a long-standing ally that just suffered a terrorist attack orders of magnitude worse for them than what 9-11 was for us, as I lay out further in episode 54. Biden has pushed for humanitarian pauses, loudly called on the Israelis to do more to avoid civilian casualties, and reiterated America's steadfast commitment to a two-state solution resulting in an independent Palestinian state. This is what any other competent Democratic president would and should be doing in this situation, and rather more than could be expected of most of the Republicans currently vying for the job, most of whom are scrambling over one another to outdo each other in demonstrating their total lack of concern for Palestinian civilians. I don't think any reliable voter who knows anything about American politics or the history of American foreign policy, and I have no reason to believe that that somehow doesn't apply to most Arab Americans or most Muslim Americans, would seriously expect an American president of any party to be like chanting from the river to the sea from behind the resolute desk. And by the way, anybody who will stay home or vote for Trump since Biden isn't doing that probably isn't somebody that we want the Democratic Party to have to consistently bank on to assemble a winning electoral coalition, unless we want to go the way of the British Labour Party. Whew. Okay. Went a bit further down that rabbit hole than I planned, but yeah. In summary, in addition to the age narrative, I think that the fact that Democratic voters seem much more willing than do Republican voters to publicly trash their party's leader is probably another driver of Biden's bad polls. That being said, am I worried about them? Yeah, I am. They're definitely concerning. That said, one, I think they partly reflect a world in which people just haven't seriously contemplated a return of Trump and thus aren't thinking in the binary way that they probably will be doing so a year from now. And two, Biden is underestimated over and over again and always seems to overperform expectations. I could go into details of policy, like the time in Biden's first year when his administration hit their 100-day vaccine goal on day 58. But, okay, let's just look at the politics. In 2020, everybody said he was dead after Iowa, and then they said he was dead after New Hampshire, and then he wins South Carolina and basically, within like a matter of days, had consolidated and swept the primary. Everybody said he was dead in the general election. Like, oh my God, Biden, he's just sitting in his basement. Yeah, he won. Everybody said Democrats were going to get absolutely annihilated in the midterms in 2022. And then Biden presided over a better midterm outing for the party in power than anyone since FDR. And then there was this Tuesday, which brings me to the second big topic that I want to discuss in this episode. A few states earlier this week had a set of elections that, yes, were important to the people of those individual states, but well, ordinarily a gubernatorial election in two super-red southern states, Kentucky and Mississippi, wouldn't make national news, nor would state legislative races in Virginia. 
But in the context of these crazy times, and especially in the shadow of these new, very dire polls for Biden that came out earlier in the week, yeah, the elections Tuesday were absolutely national news. And just as has been the pattern with Biden so far, the entire Democratic Party shits its pants repeatedly over polls, and then when the voting actually starts, Democrats actually end up doing quite well. Here are a few of the things that were at stake in the election on Tuesday. In Kentucky, a state that Trump won by like 25 points, a rising Republican star was hoping to unseat a blue governor who narrowly won the governorship in 2019. So there was a Kentucky governorship on the table. In Virginia, a formerly red but recently blue-ish state is governed by Republican Glenn Youngkin, a pretty hardcore conservative who pretends to be less hardcore by wearing a vest everywhere, which I guess for some people, for some reason, takes the edge off. I analyze how Youngkin managed to win that race back in episode 20 of this podcast, which is worth a listen. Spoiler alert, voters don't seem to like certain parts of the Democratic coalition that Barack Obama has labeled buzzkills. <laughs> when Youngkin parlayed... Uh, frustration over perceptions of the left's social agenda into a win in the governor's race in Virginia back in 2021, Republicans also managed to take back the Virginia House, and they were hoping that in this election on Tuesday, they'd take back the Virginia Senate as well, which would A, open the way for a total abortion ban in Virginia, which the governor had promised, and B, that governor hoped, anyway, vault him into an attempt to run for president and consolidate the not-Trump lane of the Republican primary. Then in Mississippi, a hard-red state that consistently leads the nation in being among the worst in basically every measurable category, a Democrat vaguely related to Elvis actually had a decent shot at beating the weird little creep who's the Republican governor of that state. And finally, in what's basically part two of the issue I was discussing in episode 47 of this podcast, Ohio voters went to the polls to vote on a constitutional amendment to protect abortion rights in that state after, as I again discuss in more detail in episode 47, Republicans earlier this summer held another referendum when they thought nobody was looking in order to try to preempt this one by making it harder to pass constitutional amendments in Ohio. That attempt over the summer to rat-fuck the process failed. So then what ended up happening in the end on Tuesday? Well, in Kentucky, the incumbent Democratic governor, Andy Beshear, won easily, by several more points than he did when he was first elected. In Virginia, not only did Republicans not manage to take the state Senate, they actually also ended up losing their majority in the state House to boot. Oof, well, guess we won't be seeing Glenn Youngkin riding in on a white horse to join the scrum of Republican candidates tearing each other to shreds for the privilege of coming in second place after Donald Trump. In super-red Mississippi, the incumbent Republican governor did manage to scrape a win. But he did, again, in super-red Mississippi, by less than the incumbent Democratic governor won by in also super-red Kentucky. And then in Ohio, voters overwhelmingly chose to enshrine the right to have an abortion in that state's constitution by like 13 points. Now, this wouldn't have actually been enough if the Republican scheme over the summer had worked, but still, it is a double-digit victory for abortion rights in a state that could not realistically be described as anything other than solidly red at this point. This has interesting implications in a number of different ways. As I discuss back in episode 47, since the early 1970s, Republicans were the beneficiaries of a huge political gift in the form of Roe v. Wade. Because the Supreme Court stepped in to protect abortion rights, Republicans were, for decades, able to bring hardcore religious voters into their camp by virtue signaling about abortion, 
but without really taking the risk of alienating voters who might support other parts of the Republican platform but think it's insane to force a woman, including rape victims, to carry an unwanted pregnancy to term. Although they were able to pass some restrictions on abortion, Republicans were, you might say, shooting blanks when it came to this issue, which electorally was a great benefit for them. But then last year, the Republican operatives in black dresses that make up the theocrat supermajority on the Supreme Court tore up the right to abortion nationally, and we are now, one might say, playing with live ammo when it comes to this issue. In a bunch of red states, Republicans have put into practice their anti-choice rhetoric that a lot of voters presumably never took seriously, and it turns out that the voters do not seem to like it. In that other episode where I looked at this issue, I cited none other than Ann Coulter, who, if you set aside for a moment the fact that she is a monumental xenophobe and wrong about a whole lot of stuff, is actually kind of a fascinating observer of her own political movement. And Coulter is, as I understand it, quite anti-choice, or pro-life, she would prefer that I say, I'm sure. But this summer, looking at what happened in Ohio, she sounded the alarm bells that Republicans are in serious electoral trouble if they don't come up with a better answer on the issue of abortion. In the last 24 hours, she's doing so again, pointing both at the Ohio outcome and the fact that Youngkin's Republicans got bitch-slapped in Virginia after he promised an abortion ban. Today, she's out with a new post declaring that pro-life is the defund the police of the GOP. And, yeah, maybe. I guess the only difference would be that almost no serious Democratic politician actually called for defunding the police, but most elected Republicans do seem to be in favor of, to one degree or another, banning abortion. Looking at it through a political lens, which Coulter was surely doing with the defund the police comparison, yeah, the idea that a lot of Republican elected seem to think that it's a good idea to force adolescent rape victims to carry their uncle's hypothetical baby to term, and no, for the record, no, I'm not being hyperbolic, that is actually the example given by, like, given spontaneously by the Republican gubernatorial candidate in Michigan last year. Given that, that that does seem to be where a number of Republican elected officials are, yes, this issue could very well be the same kind of albatross around the necks of Republicans as defund the police, worst slogan ever, was for Democrats in the 2020 election. As I say, though, it could actually even be worse than Coulter's anticipating, since no serious Democrat ever actually called to defund the police, and the slogan has largely kind of disappeared, whereas the Republicans really do seem determined to plow through with this. I mean, Trump is apparently planning to try to position himself as being, like, more moderate on this issue than the other Republican presidential candidates. But on the other hand, he also can't seem to stop himself from bragging constantly about how he stacked the Supreme Court with the judges who killed the national right to abortion. So... We'll just have to see. It is a very good thing from a policy standpoint that Ohio has joined the various other states that have enshrined the right to abortion. I just hope that Ohio voters remember what the Republicans tried to do to them on this issue and don't forgive them next election, even though at the local level the Republicans are back to, as it were, shooting blanks. I sure hope they, for example, remember this a year from now when Sherrod Brown is running for re-election in Ohio. So what are we to make? of these big political stories this week, the terrible poll numbers for Biden followed by solid Democratic successes in actual elections. Well, I see a couple of ways of looking at this. One option, Democratic voters may like to vacillate in polls and show their let the perfect be the enemy of the good instincts when they get a call from a pollster, but when push comes to shove, they'll show up and vote blue. 
combination of Biden being actually a very good president overall, even if he hasn't given every single member of the Democratic Party everything they'd want from a hypothetical Democratic king of America, and the Republicans being nuts, means at the end of the day, Democrats will come home. Maybe that's one way to look at this week. Another conclusion that I've seen some people draw, this shows that Biden really is very weak. I mean, this level of support for the Democratic Party on Election Day indicates that the party, at least, is very popular. So if Biden's numbers are shit, well, there must be something wrong with Biden, which wouldn't be the case for a generic Democrat. That's another conclusion I've seen some folks drawing. A third potential takeaway, which I haven't heard as much lately, but I think deserves some consideration right now, is the idea that the combination of bad polling for our party's national leader and good electoral performances in a few areas is a reminder of the uncomfortable reality that in a lot of parts of the country, the National Democrats brand sucks, and we should be asking ourselves why and what can be done about it. Famous former Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill used to say that all politics is local. I don't think this is true anymore. Oh, there are times when it still is, but more and more, every race down to school board seems to be heavily influenced by what each party is doing at the national level. And in parts of the U.S., having a D next to your name is just an unpardonable offense. Now, I'm not saying that's not true for the Republicans as well. It is. But I'm not trying to help them get elected. Furthermore, the parts of the country where the Democratic Party's brand is increasingly toxic are, unfortunately, parts of the country that have disproportionate political power. And those trends are not reversing anytime soon. Now, you might reasonably ask, Oliver, how the hell are you looking at an election night that looked good for Democrats and drawing the conclusion that one of the more important things to learn from it is that the blue brand sucks in big parts of the country? Well, let's look at probably the single most high-profile candidate-to-candidate race, which would be the governor's race in Kentucky. But Oliver, the Democrat, won that one, you might say. Yes, Andy Bashir won. But he won by not running as a hardcore progressive activist. His opponents tried, over and over again, to link Bashir with the National Democratic Party, which is wildly unpopular in Kentucky. But Bashir tailored himself to fit the issue profile of his state. He did not campaign as though he was talking to the faculty lounge at my alma mater or a guest speaker at, like, Drag Queen Story Hour. Now, for the record, I personally think that both of those things are great. But appealing to me is probably not how you win over the average voter in Kentucky or, well, almost anywhere else, really. Bashir, rather, drew attention to the fact that his opponents supported banning abortion in all cases, including rape and incest, which, you know, are a little extreme. And he aligned himself with Biden's bipartisan national infrastructure law that Kentucky's own Republican senator even had voted for. Other than those things... Bashir did everything he could to keep himself away from the National Party and close to local issues. His victory, thus, is the exception that proves the rule, that politics is increasingly nationalized and the blue brand is pretty toxic outside big cities, some suburbs, and the coasts. Why else do I think this week indicates problems with the Democratic Party's brand in big parts of the country, particularly less affluent elite areas where we used to be able to win elections but are now shut out? Well, the Ohio thing. By a 13-point spread, Ohioans came out and voted for the side obviously aligned with the Democrats on a particular issue of importance. But exit polls of the people voting in Ohio showed Biden, the Democrats' leader at the national level, polling very badly, and Republicans still totally dominate the state. Like, I guarantee you, we're not going to even make a play for Ohio at the presidential level next year. It would be a straight-up waste of resources to do so. 
More generally, although we Democrats, rightly in my view, like to think of ourselves as being the party that's better on policy, well, polls recently have shown Republicans beating Democrats issue by issue on a number of issues. Some people could look at that and say, oh, America is actually just much more conservative than we thought. But no, I don't think so. Polls may show Republicans dominating on some issues, but let's be real. These polls are done in the context of a political ecosystem in which most major media outlets almost never talk about the party's actual positions on the issues when there's drama and craziness to cover, which these days there is literally always. So... I don't think most voters actually know what the party's positions on most issues actually are. When you put individual issues on ballot initiatives to be voted on, the side that Democrats favor really does seem to win most of the time. The big ones lately have been on abortion, but also often minimum wage hikes, redistricting reform. Hell, I forgot to mention, Ohio earlier this week, in addition to protecting abortion rights, voted to legalize weed, another thing that aligns much more closely with Democrats than with Republicans. This all indicates to me that either we liberals are just really good at running campaigns around ballot initiatives, or voters for some reason aren't associating the Democratic Party, the political left in America, with its position on issues with which they seem to align. Oh, another example? The last couple weeks saw huge victories for unions in the automotive sector. Huge wins. And polls have been showing that Americans are supportive right now of unions in a way that they haven't been in decades. Yet another issue where what the American people think would seem to align much more with the party that represents the American left than the one that is supported by the American right. My point is this. When asked, either in polls or in referendums, how they feel about a certain issue, the voting public almost always seems to come out on the side that the Democrats favor. But then when polled on which party they trust more to deal with various individual major issues, Republicans often seem to win. This, to me, indicates a serious problem with the Democrats' brand nationally, because if you say you support tax hikes for the rich, unions and raising the minimum wage, but then when polled you also say you trust Republicans more than Democrats on the economy, well, you probably don't actually know what the Democrats' position is on those issues. If you don't pay close attention to politics, and let's be realistic, most Americans don't, you probably can't be relied upon to actually know the party's positions on most major issues. And so your answer on who do you trust more to deal with issue X is going to be based more on your overall perception of the parties. Now, a lot of attention has rightly been paid to the fact that the Republican Party and the American right is just nuts right now. But I think they sometimes get a pass, or at least are helped, by the fact that the ways in which they are nuts are kind of baked in for people. Like, yes, the hardcore anti-democracy stuff is kind of new, but everybody already knew that the Republicans were the party of heterosexism and extremist anti-abortion policy. That is not so true, on the other hand, for Democrats. Let me explain. Uh, where Democrats are hurt, I think, is by the fact that although... The faction of the left that is crazy is far smaller than the faction of the right that is crazy, and that fringe of the far left, although very noticeable, is barely represented in elected government, unlike on the other side where the fringe is now the mainstream. I mean, <laughs> look who the new speaker is. Sorry, the point I'm trying to make here is that while everybody's kind of used to the ways in which the right is crazy, the left fringe in America is less consistent. 
and seems to come up with some new crazy thing every couple of years, which, although, again, this is not representative of the Democratic Party, high-profile stuff, like the idea of straight-up eliminating the police, or cancel culture, which, for better or worse, is more is unpopular and is more associated with the left, now, like, tearing down posters of kidnapped Israeli children. Now, I get that there is a deeper context to most of those things that I mentioned, and I also get that most of them are not in the mainstream of the left. But these sorts of things, and the, sorry, but understandable attention that they get, do help to create a sort of drip, drip, drip of, oh my god, what are they going to come up with next? Which does not, as they used to say, play well in Peoria. To summarize my half-baked hypothesis... Although the Republicans have a much bigger crazy problem than the Democrats do, the impact of the comparatively smaller crazy left may end up actually hurting us more in the way that it evolves, which then affects the way news about it both overstates its influence and breaks through to lower-intensity followers of American politics who do still vote. I don't know. It's a theory. Take it with a healthy grain of salt. Maybe I'll think about it and develop it more some other time when I don't desperately need sleep and do feel like taking the risk of receiving a bunch of hate mail. Bottom line, although this week may have started out with some scary poll numbers, the only poll that matters, as they say, is the one on Election Day. And at least on this Tuesday, that one went pretty damn well for the blue team. I just hope that we, as a party, are willing to think critically about where we're vulnerable and well, something tells me that in ways I started to explore a few minutes ago... Our vulnerabilities may go a bit beyond just Biden's old. Well, that's it for this episode of OK Talks. If you're liking the show and want to make sure not to miss the next episode, hit subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts, or shoot me an email at oktalkspodcast at gmail.com if you want to be added to the email list. Or if you just want to reach out uh, for something else to comment on the show, I really have loved hearing from people so far, so you know, by all means, keep it coming. Uh, if you really want to do me a solid, as always, please do go ahead, share the show with anybody you think might get something out of it. Thanks to anybody who already has. Thanks in advance to anybody who will. Thanks, as always, to my friend Nate Wright for having designed the podcast artwork and to everyone else for listening.